This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Well, after only 14 months as the CEO of General Electric, John Flannery is out. Various reports say that Flannery's inability to address, to quickly address issues, is it, including its troubled power unit, led to his ouster. Once at around $27.60 a share, the stock price had fallen to near $11 in the last week or so. Meanwhile, the board of directors had to issue a statement that GE would miss its profit and cash flow targets for this year. S&P Global Ratings this week downgraded the company, and other credit analysts say they may follow suit. Lawrence Culp, former CEO of Danaher, has been named to replace Flannery. So the pressure is on him to turn this situation around. With more on this, we are joined here in studio by Mike Useem, director of the Center for Leadership and Change Management here at the Wharton School, as well as a professor of management here at Wharton. And also joining us on the phone, Tim Hubbard, who's an assistant professor of management at the University of Notre Dame. Mike, great seeing you again. Thank you for coming in. Dan, great to be here, and we've got a good story to mull over. Thank you. Tim, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So I guess there is a lot to mull over uh, on this story, Mike. And I guess first, it was a little bit of a shocker that Flannery was ousted only 14 months into his tenure. Yeah, a total shocker just by way of um, history informing us that it uh, probably was was a surprise— GE, of course, goes back to Thomas Edison. They've always hired on the inside, brought people up from the inside, and CEOs typically have been very, very long-serving. The famous Jack Welsh went for 20 years. His successor, Flannery's predecessor, uh, Jeff Immelt, he was in there for 16 years. And so uh, to serve for 14 months, as John Flannery did serve, uh, it was a shock when he was released. But the other thing, uh, Tim, is the fact that not only did uh, Jack Welch and, and Jeff Immelt spend that lengthy period of time as the CEOs, they had been in the company for a good period of time as well. Flannery was the same. So this is a unique change in that somebody from outside the company that really doesn't have any experience with GE is going to take over as CEO. That's correct. Yeah, it's a, quite a bit of a change. And, you know, company culture at GE has really been focused on developing leaders over the past 20 to 25 years. And so um, having an outsider comes in, it really does mark how, how much change I think the board wants in terms of uh, efficiency and speed on various strategic initiatives. We've seen, it feels like, a number of moves to rebrand GE to a degree and really seemingly, uh, Tim, make it about their aviation and power generation divisions, correct? Yes, definitely. And if, if we think all the way back to Jack Welsh, I mean, he inherited a businesses, business that was focused on manufacturing, chemicals, engineering. And throughout his tenure, things changed quite a bit and continued to change under Jeff Emmelt. And so the company of today is, is vastly different than, than back even 10, 20 years ago. So where do you think they're headed then? I think they're going to, over the next uh, few years, uh, continue to shed businesses and and really try to streamline uh, back to kind of the the future vision of the core businesses of General Electric, which are, uh, like I said, different from, from the early 80s. Mike, what do you think? 
Uh, same point. I, I think it is uh, actually it's remarkable just going back on what Tim has just implied that the company went to the outside, no history of that whatsoever, but maybe symptomatic that the board in its wisdom decided that it need completely fresh eyes on the business uh, to understand what they ought to keep, what they ought to dispose of. Tim also mentioned that GE is famous for its uh, leadership engine, to borrow a phrase that was often applied, certainly under Jack Welsh, as he uh, and his predecessor built what's called Crotonville, the, the, the college campus that serves leadership development. And that was key, I think, to keeping the conglomerate together for so many years. Tim referenced the diversity, included NBC television and toaster ovens at one point, along with light bulbs. And that was, in a sense, the magic glue, the the ability to create great managers and keep uh, the fire under their feet. But uh, in the last 15 or 20 years, virtually all companies have moved in the same direction. So while it was once a competitive advantage, it's not so much now. What are we seeing right now when you look at companies, Mike, in terms of their decision process to either stay within the company when they change CEOs or go outside of the company? So here's what the academic research says pretty consistently. When companies are doing fine, go within. Uh, Larry Culp, the new guy, he, he came up within Danaher. Uh, didn't come up within GE, but that's uh, because Danaher was doing well as he then became CEO some years ago there. When companies, though, are in trouble, they need redirection. Uh, Wells Fargo notwithstanding, where they brought an insider (laughs) to the top of that firm, many companies, uh, Tyco famously, AIG as it dug out, uh, they went to the outside for good reason, and academic evidence says when you're in trouble, looking to the outside is a good way to go. Now, Tim, also another element I wanted to discuss here is obviously a lot has been talked about uh, with this decision that the board of directors was not happy with maybe the cha- uh, the pace of change. What about the shareholders? And, and I say that because there's an interesting comment from their new lead director, GE's new lead director, Thomas Horton. He said, Larry Culp has a proven track record in company transformation and delivering shareholder value. The board looks forward to working with Larry and his team to return GE to growth and long-term success. That's That alone says that they were not happy with the shareholder value that uh, Mr. Flannery had been br- uh, bringing. And obviously, if you look at the stock price over the last several months, it had been uh, declining significantly. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. If we stand back and look at the, all the news that happened on Monday, you know, this is balanced with the $23 billion uh, goodwill impairment in their power business. And to see stock the stock rise so much on the change of leadership while that's also happening uh, also underscores how dissatisfied shareholders were with the current leadership and at the same time how excited they are with, with an outsider coming in, hopefully with uh, fresh perspectives. Yeah, well, just to head to Tim's observation there, the stock uh, went up. This has been widely reported or widely noticed about 7% on the announcement. That's actually an amazing percentage in that let's make it a, a – let's round off GE market value at around, let's say, $100 billion just to get an even number there. Yep. Take 7% of that. We t- talking about $7 billion on the fact that a new CEO is coming in. And it was 15% in the initial couple of hours. So, I mean, it yeah, it yeah, really totally. shot up and then kind of leveled off a little bit. And we've seen that in other companies when uh, a significant change is a significant change. When they brought a new CEO in to re- replace uh, Travis Kalanick at Uber about a year and a quarter ago, uh, Uber, of course, not publicly traded. We can't look at the numbers there. But the CEO that came in left Expedia 
couple trading days later, Expedia lost a billion of $20 billion in market value. The market has spoken, in that case, about the cost of an exit of a CEO. And in this case, we have the positive, affirmative statement that this man's, uh, this Larry Culp's leadership is probably going to add at least a couple billion dollars, if not more, to the value of the company. But you still have to make those right decisions, Tim. And I don't think that a lot of people thought that that the decisions, some of the decisions that uh, that, that Mr. Flannery was making were the wrong decisions. It was just the timing of everything, correct? That's correct. Uh, you know, they've they've decided recently to shed a number of businesses, and I think the board was growing frustrated uh, with the pace of those. I don't think uh, a lot of times they disagreed necessarily uh, with the choices that were being made. It's just the once the decisions were made, uh, the pace of change wasn't keeping up with their expectations. Mike? Yeah, to, to uh, stay with that for just uh, a second, several years ago, Ford Motor Company itself brought a new CEO actually up from the ranks, uh, carefully groomed by the outgoing CEO. Everybody said this is a great pick. But a couple years later, I think it was, was it two and a half or three years later, that CEO was ousted actually for almost uh, the same reasons, at least as articulated by the respective boards. Yeah. And that is he was just not able to change Ford fast enough to stay up with the market. That was the charge against Flannery as well, here too by uh, well observers and the board. And it's a statement that Regardless of the people, if you're in the corner office these days with the rate of change in just about everything, think about digital disruption. Sure, yeah. yeah. You have to be yeah. uh, a person who is agile. You've got to move. You've got to make things happen. Boards have become uh, unhappy with people who don't do that, as is the equity market unhappy. And I think another important thing there is also the ability to communicate the changes that are happening and the paces of change that are happening. I've spoken to a number of analysts and uh, and reporters throughout this week, and all of them have expressed uh, dissatisfaction with how much information uh, was coming out of GE from the executive office and what kind of information. And I imagine that that same thing might have been happening in the boardroom, where even if these changes were taking place at a swift uh, pace, they might not have been communicated in a way that the board felt comfortable. Yeah, if I can just add to yeah. what uh, Tim just said, uh, the age of transparency is here, and the big institutional holders, uh, think BlackRock, think Vanguard, think Fidelity, think State Street, uh, they want to know what's going on, and if they don't hear pretty good estimates of what, what is going on, or forecasts, uh, not not technical forecasts, but a, but a they want to hear the strategy story, what the plan is in detail, and the same for the board. A different way to put that, Tim, try this one out. Uh, boards never want to be surprised, and there was a surprise or two in this case. Definitely. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call with your comments or questions. You're joined on the phone uh, by Tim Hubbard of the University of Notre Dame in studio with Mike Seem here of the Wharton School. or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. You know, Tim, I've seen a a couple of comments in in the last day or so that actually said that maybe Mr. Flannery was given a little bit of a bad hand going into this. Do you agree? I do agree. Um, If we stand back and look, for example, at the power business, which is one of the the key issues that that was raised on Monday, uh, the Alstom was purchased in 2015, right around the peak of uh, energy prices. And that shifted their power business into naturally uh, focused on, for example, uh, non-renewable energy sources. 
and the trend had been uh, towards more renewable energy sources. So he inherited that acquisition uh, and a number of issues in terms of uh, product quality and, and consistency uh, in the power business specifically. And so I think if we even just look at the one one issue around power, uh, we he did inherit a bit of a, a bit of a bad hand. What is the expectation then you think we will see? What's the pressure going to be on uh, on the new CEO, Larry Culp, going into this? I think a key part of it is going to be operational effectiveness for the businesses that they're going to keep. I don't think they want to keep having the same product issues that they've been having lately, uh, for example, in power. And at the same time, I expect them to accelerate the, the spinoffs and uh, various divestitures of the businesses that they they plan or, or in the near future they uh, replan uh, to to get rid of. And so I think that those two things will be uh, very interesting to watch over the next few few quarters. Mike? Yeah, Tim, I would just add that the, the fishbowl that Larry Culp's going to be in in the months ahead, we're all fascinated, almost riveted by uh, what's happening there. We just, as a, I'm an academic bystander, but certainly investors, anybody with a pension fund that is investing in uh, any kind of index fund is in GE stock, of course. We're all uh, fascinated on whether indeed uh, Mr. Culp can pull it off. Here's a, here's a statement back to this issue of a bad hand. Uh, I one time poked through a lot of research evidence. It's the, the answer to this question I'm going to put in front of us in a second is not totally clear. But do you want to follow a, a weekly performing CEO or do you want to perf- follow a person who is very strong? Sure, yeah. And uh, there are arguments both ways. I could take it either way. I could argue it either way. But it, it seems that um, successors do best if they actually build on strength. And in that sense, yeah. uh, Jeff Immelt, the prior CEO for many years going back to one. Uh, had left some problems that uh, Flannery had to deal with, yeah. so it was not a not a great hand. Last point I would add, just to take in one more theme in this uh, terrain we're we're mapping out here, I think the role of the board is going to be totally vital. They they intervened here, forced out a CEO. It doesn't happen very often. Yeah, it's a strong board. They've got several CEOs on it who can provide guidance and advice from their own personal experience, and they are hopefully going to be of counsel. That is, they're going to actually help. Uh, Larry Culp, uh, <laughs> speed time cycles up, decide what ought to be spun off, reposition, re-argue what they stand for. Tim, your thoughts? And I think uh, one thing, you know, when we're looking at the governance changes at GE right now, one interesting thing that I noticed was that they uh, appointed Larry Culp also as the chairman of the company and decided then uh, to keep the dual dual role. I was expecting if you're going to put an outside CEO in that you would also maybe separate out those two roles and then increase the, the independence and, and capability of the board to govern the, the company. Yeah, and it's, it's, I picked up on the same thing, Tim, and that is it's a, it's a vote of confidence that Larry brings what's going to be required. And I think the vote of confidence is well-placed. Uh, it's been reported, but just to review it, he ran Danaher, which is a company that most consumers wouldn't have heard of, but it's a huge maker of many, many products, uh, kind of in a, it's actually not unlike GE in some respects. It's got several different, quote, platforms. He ran it for, um, I think it was 14 or 15 years, uh, started at age 38, a very young president, and Danaher outperformed just about everybody over his terrain. Yeah. 
with a management method that actually made a difference, and I think we're going to see it brought into well, GE. And that, and the method really does play a, a significant role here with Culp kind of coming in. Uh, and again, this would be something I would guess, Mike, that that would be fairly different from anything that GE has seen prior. Correct. GE's worked very hard on on quality and in, in, in everything it does. The, the whole uh, kind of uh, Six Sigma thing is, is partly a GE signature on it. That said, Larry Culp uh, was a great fan of the Toyota lean production or Toyota uh, system yeah. in which continuous improvement, exacting focus on what you're delivering, uh, no fooling around at the top and in the ranks in insisting that everything be produced on time with quality. Anyway, there's a long story there about Danaher's success. It way outperformed the market over the years he was CEO, uh, partly because of who he is, but maybe most importantly of all because of the system he brought there. So I think we're going to see a doubling down on quality, of uh, quality meaning process oversight. So every everything you make goes out the door, uh, and it works, which is not a trivial problem. And also, no, no quarter, no year shall be cheered for its success in and of itself. We've got to look at the problems we still face. That's the whole Toyota continuous improvement emphasis. He brought it. Yeah. Uh, he had it there at, at his last company. I think we're going to see it re, double down at GE as well. Tim? Yeah, I think Larry Culp also, you know, in terms of, of quality, I typically uh, view CEOs as requiring about 25 years of training before they take the office. And, and the point that Mike brought up with uh, how young he was when he came into office at Danaher and then the, the tremendous strength, you know, 465 percent increase in shareholder value over his tenure compared to 105 percent for the S&P right. 500. I mean, it really underscores that he has some latent ability to run uh, conglomerate companies. A slight difference, though, is just how closely some of the Danaher companies were and the ability to transfer knowledge, people, management across them, yeah. uh, compared to how uh, how large General Electric is right now, where there isn't always those clear lines of connection between the, the various businesses in the GE conglomerate. I, I would guess that there obviously is, and as big as General Electric is, even even now, having sold off a lot of properties, Tim, this is it is a lean down company. You're talking about having really a couple of focuses for General Electric. How do you think that impacts the company moving forward? Well, I think if you stand back and look, you know, for example, the uh, the decision to slowly phase out the light bulbs, you know, part of the company. Yeah. Uh, that kind of goes back to the core of the company. And if you're working in GE right now and you see some of these changes, changes that were, you know, for, you know, the Edison family, you know, Edison built GE based on light bulbs. And so uh, some of the, the changes that they're doing, I think, really shake some of the foundations of employees that are there. And I'm not quite sure all of them totally buy into the exact changes that are happening. Right. Yeah. To pick up on that on the equity market side for just a moment, uh, the way the American institutional investing world has evolved over the last quarter century, really, is for analysts uh, to become specialists in given markets and really come to understand, let's say, how Procter & Gamble operates or okay. American Airlines operates. You're an airline specialist or a consumer product specialist. Gee, historically, when they had light bulbs and they had toaster <laughs> ovens and they yeah. had capital and they also had uh, NBC Washers and dryers. and Really yeah. tough for equity analysts to follow. And uh, thus, uh, for many years now, uh, we know from research and certainly uh, experience, uh, conglomerates have been an endangered species. That said... 
GE will remain a little bit of a uh, diversified firm. I think under Larry, he's going to, he's, anyway, they've been saying they want to keep aviation power and energy in. Those are not identical, although they got some commonalities. What Larry Culp, I think, is going to be asked to do is to find, to borrow an old hackneyed phrase, synergy. Somehow what you find in the aviation research and development can somehow kick over to power, or at least you've got great people coming up in aviation who might be moved in, into power. If Larry Culp can do that, I think he can justify the uh, the fact that it's still a diversified, uh, modestly diversified company. And by the way, that did happen at his prior location, Danaher. Does he get 14 months? <laughs> Jim, you want to take a, stri- a fling at that one? I'll, then I'll add on. I, th- I think as an outsider, I think the board of directors might give him a little bit more slack yeah. uh, than an insider. An insider, you expect to come in and have a, a really solid understanding yeah. of the company. And I think, uh, you know, Larry's going to come in. He's going to have to take a little bit of time, reassess. He's been on the board, so hopefully not too terribly long. Uh, but yeah. I, I would hope that he would get more than 13 months. Yeah, yeah, I would add to that by saying that the board actually is a much better board uh, in one particular way than it had been under, certainly under Jeff Immel. At one point, there were 19 board members. Mm-hmm. How's that for a committee that can't function? Uh, it's now down to, I think it's 11, which is right modal, right right on the money when it comes to what research says for an optimal board size. you got enough diversity of thinking. Yeah. That's, that's why you want a larger one, but small enough that it can actually work. So uh, it will, uh, in its oversight function, uh, expect, I'm sure, Larry Culp within a year or two to work out the strategy and move things forward. Separately from that, though, boards have also become partners. And I think uh, many of those board members, I am sure, are going to feel the pressure and the incentive themselves to work with him hand in hand. Well, I, I think, I mean, Tim, obviously boards feel pressure no matter what, but how, how different is it now that you've had this this shift in leadership now twice in the last year and a half? I think it's especially important. I think the the clear communication between the board of directors and the CEO on what are the expectations of the board. Um, I think, you know, they're the board changing from 12 to 11 was actually Flannery leaving the board, and so they've yeah. they've got even one more spot to fill on the board of directors. And who they select there also will give a bit of an indication on the type of strategy they want to go forward. What is the type of oversight we need? What type of uh, advice giver do we need on the board of directors to make sure that Larry's in a position to be successful? I would imagine also, Tim, that even the shareholders are, are watching this even closer uh, in the short term because because of the fact that, that Culp is coming on as CEO. Yeah, definitely. They're going to be looking at this very closely, and they're going to be looking at the board of directors to make sure that they are seeing the changes that they expect to see. This is big news, and this is a large change. And if the board isn't supportive of uh, of Larry, I think there's a distinct possibility that there might be turnover on the board. Yep. Uh, I'm, I'm totally uh, on that page myself. And I but, think maybe a kind of a closing thought here. Uh, there is, a, some people would say, value locked up in GE that can be unlocked. It's a great company. It's got a history that goes back 100 years. It was the original Dow Jones company, yeah. uh, the, 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 the last survivor. And I think between Culp's leadership and what the board can bring to the table, I think the potential is there if they can figure out how to go ahead. So then, Tim, what do you think then is, I think it's twofold, the, the fact that the board of directors came out and said, you know, we have to take this charge this quarter. Expect that we're probably going to, our numbers are going to be lower than expected. It almost feels to me sitting and looking at it twofold. One, 
that they understand it's kind of reinforcing the fact that they had an issue with Mr. Flannery. But two, it's almost like they want to give a window for Culp, say, don't focus on Culp in this quarter. Let's look at him moving forward from that. I think that's exactly right. If we look at the press release that was issued, it begins by announcing that you know there's going to be the change in, in chief executive officer and chairman, and then the second paragraph of the press release goes into the bad news about the write-off. Yeah. And I think that really emphasizes that the, they're saying, we're going to have a hit in financial performance, yeah. uh, but we have a new CEO, so be patient with us and, and, and work with us. Mike? Yeah, uh, and it speaks to the time cycle for a successful turnaround. If we look back at the turnaround at AIG or historically IBM or what's happening right now at Volkswagen and VW as they try to dig out of those holes, uh, there's no easy hit on a dig out or a restructuring. Uh, Typically, we're talking a couple years. And I think the charge to Larry Culp undoubtedly from the board is we've got to restructure, redirect, you're it. And uh, looking at history, we know it's going to take uh, probably 18 to 24 months at a minimum. Thanks, Mike, for coming in. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Tim, great having you on the phone with us today. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you. Mike Yuseem from here at the Wharton School. Joining me in studio, Tim Hubbard from the University of Notre Dame on the phone. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.